Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Enfcast where we talk about things that matter. I'm your host Mahmoud Qadir and today we have a very uh, special panel event for you guys. So stay tuned. Hello everyone and welcome to the Enfcast. Today we have a very special panel event lined up for you all. This episode is all about indigenous knowledge and climate change. It is a vital discussion to aid with climate change adaptation and mitigation ahead of COP26. This episode is in collaboration with Coffee and Geography podcast, Decolonizing Geography and Project Change. All of the links would be available in the description. And for this discussion, I am joined with Candice Lloyd, a Métis knowledge keeper who does land-based teachings in her practice. Danka <clears throat> Brewer, who is Algonquin First Nation and one of the strongest knowledge holders. And Tony So, who is the Métis founder of Firewood Learning Community. And Kit Rackley, host of the Coffee and Geography podcast. Kit is also the co-chair for this discussion. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, everybody. Um, Hello. Um, was there an introduction? Bun Metayan, Anshikia, mes amis, Candice Lloyd, Dunuction, Nishtar, Kiyeskutu, Waska, Dishuk, Dunuction, Mi Femi, Nishtar, Wabishke, Gagage, Ikwe, Nadija Kasashanavi Moen, Nimo, Kato, Shu, Kiawa Mitchell, Peo Go Tintua on Ontario, Ni Mitchell Family, Illala Cross Saskatchewan, a Red River, Manitoba, a Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, a Rainy River District, Don Napani, Ni Wikinikwa, and I will translate now. I said good morning and how are all my friends here today? I'm Candace Lloyd. I am also known as Thundercloud by my family. And I have the name of White Raven Woman within the Anishinaabe communities. I am of Crane Clan. I am a citizen of the Métis Nation of Ontario. I have Métis family from Cross Lake Island, Saskatchewan, Red River, Manitoba, and Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, within the Rainy Ris- also the Rainy River District of Ontario. I currently reside in the town of Napanee, uh, Kachimikwich. Um, and thank you for having me on your podcast today. I am looking forward to all the discussion we can have. It Long. is an honor. <laughs> thank you. Doug, you need to. Makwe Wakshikwe Indijnakas, Makwe Dodem, Shabata Bajwan, Oniki Nokono Donjaba, Titchbird Nandiyan, Minoki Jibawan. My introduction was done in Algonquin, and to translate it, it means that Kwekwe is hello. Makwe Wakshikwe Indijnakas, I am called White Bear Woman. Makwe Dodem means I belong to the Bear Clan. Shabata Bajwa Noniki Nokona means that I reside in the traditional unceded uh, ancestral lands of the Shabata Bajwan First Nation. Tichburnan Dayan means I live in Tichburn and Minoki Jibawan is good day. And thank you for having me here for this panel discussion. 
Miigwech. Thank you. Thank you. Miigwech. Miigwech. So I believe we have Tony. Ani bonjour, Tani and Dijnikas. Bongi tango ninata anishinaabe moem. Arden inda. Miigwech bizindalieg. Hi, my name is Tani. My heritage is actually Métis, but I have been studying Anishinaabe Moan with my son now for over a year, a language that we are thoroughly enjoying to connect to the lands that we are very blessed to live on. I live on the traditional lands of the unceded Algonquin people. And I said, thank you. Thank you for listening to me. I'm very honored to be here. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for all of you for being here. It's such an honor to talk to all of you. So um, I think uh, we could you know, dive in on t in our first um, discussion points. Um, is that okay? Could, we could. Or... And then, okay. Uh, tries the link again. <laughs> so um, the IPCC report it was released in August, and one of the biggest criticisms of the report was that it doesn't acknowledge indigenous and marginalized community knowledge. So how do you think Indigenous communities should be involved in this traditional science and why is it important? Um, I'll take a whack at that one if you don't mind, starting out with my little yeah, knowledge. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I know that in two seven, or 2007, the IPCC recognized and made a statement acknowledging that um, indigenous knowledge and traditional knowledge, um, traditional knowledge encompassing uh, indigenous knowledge and other uh, knowledge from other indigenous peoples from around the world was a very important um, aspect to consider when they were looking at um, responding to climate change um, issues because the indigenous people form approximately 5% of the world's population, manage 11% of the world's forests, lands, and customarily own or occupied or use 22% of the world's um, surface, land surface area. And it's been uh, estimated that indigenous lands and other protected areas created to safeguard um, land rights Indigenous livelihoods, biodiversity, and other values like traditional knowledge, sacred spaces, and so on, that um, can take more than I think it's three hundred or three hundred and twelve billion tons of carbon, something like that. And despite having contributed the least to global warming by um, our low footprint on Mother Earth that they are disproportionately vulnerable to ch climate change because of the impact of colonization and industrial development. So um, prior to colonization and the industrial revolution, um, we had the cleaning health or footprint on mother earth going because we didn't waste. Um, we didn't have a lot of garbage. Everything that we harvested was utilized and um, the, the uh, concern I have about not including our knowledge is that science is just starting to catch up with Indigenous knowledge and traditional practices. 
And so um, when we have events that happen like this pandemic, um, they forget to look at um, the information or the traditional practices that might have helped. So I can tell you from personal experience that during once the pandemic started with COVID-19 and we started isolating and um, restricting people from coming and going because of the transference of the disease and how it was being transmitted and so on, that we have smudged in my house. Everybody that comes into my house smudges. And they've just released now a scientific study where they realize that when we smudge, it not only creates a spiritual sacred place for us, but it also cleans the air of any uh, bacterial or virus in the air for up to eight days after smudging. And so that's the burning of incense. It's the burning of leaves, stems, um, grasses, and so on to cleanse. And that's knowledge that we've used um, since time immemorial, that when you have a cedar bath, it is a form of purification and it gets rid of any um, contact disease that you might carry or transmit by touch. With the, the smoke from the smudge, it also um, destroys anything that's airborne at the time. And with the smudge, when, when you smudge, the smoke lands on your flat surfaces as well. And so it cleanses your surfaces as well when you're using that. And so um, I have to say very few, if any people that have come to my house has had an issue with it because of our use of the traditional medicines. And I think that um, it's nice that the world recognizes that we have a lower carbon footprint as Indigenous people, that we're conscious about what we're doing. And there's a purpose to our ceremonies and our protocols when we're doing things. But I think that um, there has to be more uptake on that knowledge. And it has to be given um, more respect in the scientific realm and um, not devalued because there isn't a scientific component to it that they don't understand yet. Yeah, I've yeah. Uh, someone who's read lots of IPCC reports, uh, you know, as a environmental scientist and a, and a someone who who's worked with climate scientists. The trouble is with the IPCC is that in and itself is a product of of very colonial process. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that you know they they talk a lot about you know the latest report is meant to have you know referenced a lot of in, indigenous kind of practices and sustainable ways of working, but you know, with working group one, with all the media that's come out about that report and everything, I haven't come across, and I'm this person who looks out for this kind of stuff. I haven't come across very much in terms of how they've used indigenous voice. And when, they, and when they're going through working, when they're going to come and have working group two and three about impacts, are they going to have direct, I don't know, Candice or, or Tony or Duncan? I mean, have they spoken to any of you, any of your people in your communities about, you know, preparing for working group two no. or preparing for working group three about, about mitigation strategies? Yes. Not that I know of, not that I know of. And I can, I've been in climate meetings and for different things and environmental meetings and 
and it's usually indigenous people working with indigenous people. Uh, very rarely do I find that we're working with the people that actually are supposed to be making the change. And when we do get into work with ministries or, um, you know, we work with the Ministry of Environment or we're working with climate Ministry of Climate Control, they're telling us about all the good things they've done. Uh, if that makes sense, like they'll give us the report, they'll give us, oh, we've done all these wonderful things. Look at what we're doing. Now they're they're essentially patting themselves on the back and giving us um, their interpretation of a good job and not really letting us say what we believe needs to be done or share our um, ways of knowing or being about the land or the changes we're seeing on the land or um, anything. It's all about what uh, we're doing. This is what we're doing, and we think we're doing a great job. Um, so I don't, I don't see that flipping over. Does that make sense? Like I don't see that flipping over them coming to us and saying, uh, "This is a working group now. We're here to work together um, and gather information from our elders, our knowledge holders, uh, our our land-based keepers, and see if we can come up with understanding of what it is we need to do." to make the changes we need to make on the on the land or in the environment so that uh, we're litigating those uh, impact changes. Um, we can tell what we, we can tell them what we're seeing. We can tell them what kind of changes we're seeing. Um, but to know that they're going to hear us and take that information and actually do something with it. Now, that's the other part is Sure, they can do a working group and then take that information and just kind of set it aside and say, yeah, we had a meeting with them. There it is. But then to actually use it in the way that it should exactly. be used, right, is, is a whole nother game. Um, and I don't, I've, I've, I'm kind of disappointed because I find that these meetings, the gatherings like this, they get together and they talk a big talk about all the things that we need to do. And this is, the, 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 you know, we need to reduce and we need to do this and we need to do that. And they talk about what climate change is and, um, they come together as leaders and they have these, uh, I don't know, they come up with this string of, of or plans that don't seem to be connecting with the people that they're impacting, if that, I could put it that way. Mm. The other part is that that comes back to the people. It doesn't, the change that they're expecting isn't on, at a, at a government level, like, to make policy changes within the government or make changes within um, sustainable uses or anything like that. It's comes down, it trickles all the way down to the individual. So the impact comes, the individual has to do something. Um, rarely it's the business that makes the change or rarely it's the, um, the corporation or it's the gas company or the oil company or, you know, it's, it's not, it doesn't filter to those. It just skips them completely and comes right down to us where we stand up and we start protesting things and we start saying, okay, you can't do these things. But how many would they ever hear about Ferry Creek? Or how many of them are going to hear about um, the cutting down of, of the woods um, in BC? You know, hundred year, hundreds, thousands, thousands, like the old growth forests are being cut down. Like that, this, that should be discussed here. Like that's something we need to be bringing forward in a climate change discussion. We need to be saying, this has to stop. If you don't stop this, there'll be repercussions for the next seven generations. Whether you see them now or not, they're going to be there. Is there, is there, is there any way that Indigenous people, First Nation people can, you know, can leverage 
governments and the fossil fuel industry in any way because it i mean i mean don't you gave some fantastic if not you know very very somber facts there about the disproportionate disproportionality with regards to not just what indigenous people can can do and what they manage but the impacts that have on them as well you know through no fault very little fault of their own so and you can tell from Candice's frustration in her voice there that there doesn't seem to be any inroads because there seems to be this disconnect between the people who are on the front line, the government who really aren't taking a warning sign seriously and have this kind of rights versus needs kind of aura about them. And then you have the scientists who 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 are in the pursuit of truth, but but are not connecting enough dots for people maybe a lot of pressures put being put on them for so many different reasons i mean um i mean tony do you have any thoughts of regards to is have you had any success at all or know of anyone who's had any success on the on like with authorities or local even if it's a local authority <laughs> i'd love to say yes but the answer is absolutely not um the only time I have success is with groups of people who want to make a difference and none of them work for government. They're just people who have their own spaces who are learning and want to do better. The biggest thing for me coming into this discussion is I'm probably the least political at all of you in that my, my walking of this earth is through more of um, an energetic healing perspective. I spend a lot of time in that realm, in the feeling realm. And the one word that keeps coming back for me is disconnected. I believe in my heart that colonialism in itself is 100% disconnected from the land. And that's why it continues down the path that it does. And if you cannot put people who are connected to the land in power, you will never get a change. Yes, mm. I, I agree exactly. with that. Yeah. yeah, and um, even, even with um, climate change adaptation, it's a very, you know, Eurocentric approach towards it. There's not much, you know, if you bring in lay knowledge, that is a whole new definition of climate change adaptation. So I think that's where the problem is also in climate change adaptation is all these policies that are being brought in. You, you never include knowledge from indigenous communities when it comes to climate change adaptation. So I 100% agree with everything that you know everyone has said. What's frustrating for me is I, I talk to wonderful people like yourselves and, and I've been doing that increasingly. So I've got my, my you know, I'm trying to be a good ally in that respect. Whereas, I've, you know, I've got the background and, and my foot in the camp having worked with climate scientists and, and things like that. And it seems as though in terms of the, the you know, everyone seems to be talking the same. Well, I don't know how best analogy to put this. Everyone seems to be wanting to move in the same direction. They've got parallel solutions, but there is no cross ferment. And I think the responsibility is not. The, the more that I read, the more I talk to folks like yourself, the more responsibility is on the folks with the authority and the power because they are the ones that have caused 
the vast majority of this disruption of this disconnect. And one of the things we 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 discussed was a potential discussion point is is the whole, you know, the globalization process. Um, and Candice, you had a we, me and you when we had that beautiful discussion, you know, for coffee and geography with regards to what you're talking about strawberries coming becoming in season and you know and and having um, you know working with the land and with the food, then linking to what Duncan you was Duncan you was saying with Mahnor and on the Enf cast about the the phase of the moon and the months you know all working yeah. in in tandem in symbiosis with the land but there seemed the globalization process seems to have really disrupted that and enhanced this whole disconnect um yeah let's how, how what, what tell us a little bit more about this this disconnect how, how do we break free of this how do we reconnect yeah in the, in the world I, of globalization can i interject here for a minute yeah sure so yeah sure sure so um Indigenous people are, are directly impacted by climate change because it changes the environment that our food sources have to develop and for us to be able to harvest those food sources. So I know that um, my friends in Quebec have a moose moratorium where um, the government gave out moose tags so you could take female or calf or cow tags when the population was down low so that they were going to deplete the population of moose in the area. So the indigenous people took it upon themselves to stop the hunt by blockading the road so the people couldn't access the traditional lands to do moose hunting. Here in Charbot Lake, a couple of years ago, we actually had a developer come in and stake property, indigenous and non-indigenous property, to um, mine uranium. And so we actually had a uranium protest here. And we uh, stopped the drilling and we protested for, um, I think it was 170 days or 200 days or whatever. We occupied the land. We stopped that from going. Some of our leaders were arrested and put in jail. And um, eventually they decided to go through the court process. But while they were in court, um, they snuck in around through the back door and, and did their test drills. And so that they were going to look at um, uh, harvesting it. And the biggest part of the uranium was under Crotch Lake. So that their idea was they were going to drain Crotch, Crotch Lake, harvest the uranium. But in the meantime, because they wanted the uranium, they didn't realize that radon, how much radon they were going to be releasing, um, the habitats that they were going to be killing for the fish, and the wildlife and the plant life in the area, which would have a direct relation and environmental impact on global warming. Um, they also didn't take into the account of the people's lives that they would be affecting because prior to this, there, if you bought property, you only had surface rights. You only owned, owned six inches down into the soil. And if somebody went through and did a geological survey and they saw precious minerals there that they wanted to harvest, like such as the mica mines when the mica rush was on and uranium and, and copper and all that kind of stuff. They could come stake your land, whether you owned it or not. And um, they could come and take those uh, minerals that are there. And there was nothing you could do about it because you only owned the surface rights. You didn't own the mineral rights underneath the land. And so we had to fight that through this process as well. And so now we've changed 
the the mining process for people so that um the you had less risk of losing your land if somebody come to stake it for mining the problem that uh, we have with indigenous knowledge is, is that the indigenous knowledge has been passed down for generation to generation through oral traditions and through teachings and I want you to get your head around this before I go further is that we knew that North America was shaped like a turtle sitting in the water before there were satellites in the sky. Okay. So we had that knowledge before there was anybody talking about going to the moon. People are just realizing that now. And when we pointed out in a classroom to the students, they have an aha moment of, oh yeah, it does look like a turtle. Okay. So this is knowledge that's been passed down. If we have that knowledge about what the land looked like prior to you getting a photo from the sky saying what it looks like, when we talk about if you take one plant out of the environment, you affect the whole web of life in that area. You affect that whole climate. When we're talking about traditional medicines and we're talking about plant medicines, even by removing an animal from that, web of life from that environment you impact the feasibility and you impact the resources that are available and the content and the grade of medicine that you're going to get from any of the plants that you harvest in that area so down the road for me here is a great relation to that we have a beaver pond that the beaver has built a dam on both sides of the road now the township comes through every year and faithfully takes that dam out seven or eight times a year. Okay. From the spring, as soon as the ice breaks until the snow falls, they're down there destroying that poor beaver's house. Okay. And their dam. But that beaver is doing what it's trained to do. He is regenerating the land. He is making a swamp. He's letting the grasses grow in to provide nourishment back to the land. So the trees can go and plants can grow so the animals can come and live in that land again. Once it goes from being water back to a landmass and it's allowing nutrients in that to build up there so the plants can thrive and survive and food sources can be reestablished. But with the township coming in and taking those dams out, they are stopping that natural ecological progression that renews the lands so that they are have the mineral content and the content in there properly for the animals that need to be there and for the plants that need there for our survival. When they go and cut trees and clear cut fields, it take windbreaks down. That's why we're having the tornadoes and the hurricanes that we're having in the areas. Now we had a funnel cloud in downtown Kingston last month. Okay. So we had a tornado in the middle, middle of the city of Kingston last month, which traditionally would never have been there because they had taken down all the trees in the area, which were the windbreaks. So when we're looking at this and when, when, when the indigenous population is coming forward saying, you need to stop doing this. What we're finding is it's nice to have the IPCC in place that the worried about climate change and that, but they keep marginalizing our voice. They keep minimizing and, and um, I want to say marginizing because it's sort of like 
making someone eat margarine instead of butter. Okay. Yeah, it's cheaper to make. It's only one molecule away from plastic. All right. It doesn't have as much of the the uh, nutrients and the minerals and, and the stuff that we need to keep us healthy. But they want to replace our butter with it because, you know, butter is a natural product that comes from a cow. And as indigenous people, we didn't eat a lot of dairy. We didn't drink a lot of milk because as indigenous people, once we stopped nursing from our mother, we were drinking water and we had nuts and we ate vegetables and roots and that that had the calcium in it that we didn't need to go and take food from an animal that was meant to feed their young, their offspring. And that we had, were given five white gifts from the colonists, lard, flour, salt, um, sugar, lard, flour, salt, sugar, and milk. Those are the five white gifts that they gave us to use as staples to survive. Those things were never part of our diet. So because we've been forced through colonization to eat them, you now have indigenous people that have celiac disease, that have Crohn's disease, that has um, gluten issues, digestive diseases, um, arthritis, diabetes, fibromyalgia, the list goes on and on and on. And most of these are all dietary based issues because our DNA was made to eat off the land here in our geographical areas. But when they start building roads and salting roads in the wintertime, which then runs off and, and leaches into the ground and poisons the plants that we've normally harvest for food, um, they're slowly eroding our environment and our ecosystem so that we can be self-sustaining. My husband and I are sustenance hunters. And I'm really glad I'm a sustenance hunter because I went to go buy two pounds of hamburger the other day in our store. And it was $12, $12 for two pounds of hamburger. How many people can afford that? Going to McDonald's and buying a happy meal is cheaper than buying food to make a real meal with, which is totally disgusting because as much as I eat McDonald's with my grandchildren, I'd rather come home to a cooked meal. And hmm. so now they're making it worse for the indigenous people that try to live a traditional lifestyle, try to harvest from the land and they're making it a financial hardship for everybody else. I just heard yeah. the other day that they did a call at um, a livery stable. They killed a whole bunch of pigs because they couldn't deliver them to the market because they couldn't get them butchered. All of those pigs, if they had, process them or even if they had the farmers had sold the pigs live and people were able to buy the pig and butcher it themselves that would have fed a multitude of people but now the price of pork is going to jump up because those pigs didn't get to the butcher that are not going to get to the grocery store and so economically we're going to be in a recession and we're going to have people literally starving because they can't afford to buy the basic needs they have to have food this all deals with climate change. Sad, but true. Okay. It's, it most certainly. And, um, and it kind of does give that kind of 
really feeds into that kind of discussion about the globalization process. Yeah. So Candice or Tony, do you have anything to add there? I can offer Tony to go first. I have a couple ideas, but I'm still pulling together. Tony, do you have a, a word? No, you go ahead, Candice. I can finish up after. Okay. Um, so I've, um, I'm changed the way I go and do my grocery shopping. Um, I only buy seasonal foods if I'm, if I'm going to buy, purchase at all. I do grow my own garden. I do uh, canning. I do harvesting. So I'm um, primarily whatever I gather during the summer, I keep for the winter. Um, so we do a winter crop. Um, what that just means is you have winter cabbages, you have things that, you, that stay in the ground for as long as you can, um, and then you harvest later. Then you have things that you're going to can and preserve um, so that you can have foods throughout the year. And that kind of stops this your globalization system. Like I know that's going to sound a little weird, but I pick my strawberries in season and I preserve them so that I can have them later in my own home rather than going out to the store and buying them being transported from um, well, Mexico, I think would be, or California here. Um, and that cuts down on the greenhouse impact or your, your carbon footprint because you're not utilizing uh, trucks and, and um, other means of planes that would be another way to get them here. And it, I think for a long time, there was this big movement of eating local, but there, if, if it doesn't come within so many um, miles of your home, right, you're, you're going to try and do that. And I think this is where I like the idea that we have our indigenous knowledge holders. Some of them are actually going out and showing how to harvest off the land. Uh, they're using feeds like Twitter. They're using feeds like TikTok. They're using YouTube. Um, and they're using any means that they can to show us how to reconnect to the land, to harvest, to to find uh, means to garden, uh, to use um, companion planting. So companion planting is with things that grow together well uh, so that they can uh, re provide nutrients to the soil as well as prevent animals or uh, disease for plants. And that's, that's important. So we have the part where some of our social media platforms are doing really well and they're getting a foothold in teaching us how to limit our use on bringing foods in that we don't necessarily need by keeping it local, keeping our, our in-season food ideas. And if you do manage to keep your foods in-season to what your, what your local area is, it does prevent some of that extra connection for climate, right? You're, you're reducing the climate impact. Um, but unfortunately, we're a very want-based society if I want it, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> or if I want it, it's not a need base. Like if we need what we need um, to stay healthy, we need certain foods to maintain that health. We need to uh, connect with the land to have that health. And it's missed. It's missed in the need, the want of it. So if, the, if I didn't want it, or if I didn't want to have strawberries fresh in my lunch every day. And I was satisfied with having some of the strawberries that I preserved, or I could find an alternative fruit that is in season that I can enjoy. Um, there's other ways around those things. And we should be because it heightens our ability to enjoy something if we don't have it all the time. 
that when they that's a balance, right? If if to un, to have joy, you need to have sorrow. To have um, that enjoyment of foods that you don't have every day is something that you can do as well. Like it's that, oh, if I limit it now and I enjoy it later, you'll enjoy it more because you haven't had it for a long time. Uh, and I, I think that's how some of this is, we're connecting it, we're connecting and it's getting out there. It's slow to go, it's a slow process um, for the social media platforms. Some of the, um, our culture is being shared, some of it being hijacked and, and th that's all the process. And unfortunately, you share some, and next thing you know, it's gone. Like, because someone else is utilizing it um, as their own, more of an appropriation style rather than uh, for what we're teaching it as. Uh, yeah, so like I look at that, I look at um, needing to know, needing to know that what should be there in your environment, how it grows, when you can go harvest it. One of my favorite things to harvest is wintergreen berries. They don't come on until November, end of November, and you look forward to them because you know you're not going to get them any other time of the year. Um, you just go and harvest them when you can, and it's that's it's that special find. It's that special connection to getting something that you can anticipate. You can anticipate that. You can you can build your own anticipation to enjoy that, to enjoy that moment, to make that fine, to go out and, and not depend on going into the grocery store and finding, and I know you're not going to find these wintergreen berries. You're not going to find them. And I'm, it's just not something that's out there. Uh, it's like when I know there's harvesters out there that harvest um, morels. That takes a certain knack. You need to know where to go. You need to know where they are. You need to know false morals. But people spend unbelievable amounts of money for them. So you just go out. We have people that go out and just harvest it dry, harvest it empty. Well, you're not supposed to do that. You shouldn't do that. Absolutely not. Uh, you have to leave some for the next growth because it depends on the next set of growth. It needs, you need to leave some behind so the next ones will grow. You have to have the honorable harvest. And that's also part of what I'm going to kind of jump on this in this part is when you're harvesting, you don't take the first, you don't take the last. You ask for permission. If everybody had to ask for permission for things, you'd certainly stop and think about whether or not you actually needed it or not. You ask for permission from the plant, you ask permission from the animal, you ask permission. Uh, from the tree, you ask permission from the water, the fish, the bird in the air, the one that lands or walks on the ground. By asking your brethren, because that's what they are to us, they are our relations. And if you look at trees as a relation, do you really want to cut it down? Do you really want to tear up every plant there is just so that you can have it on your dinner plate? Uh, recognizing that when I harvest, Things should be harvested routinely, absolutely, because we need to make sure that it's getting used because that's the way Mother Nature likes it. Um, when you stop harvesting it, it stops growing. And if you harvest too much of it, it stops growing. Uh, it needs to have a balance of use and disuse. Uh, we need to make sure that there's some for the animals. You need to make sure there's some for the next person coming by. You need to make sure that there's growth for the next year. Uh, we replant, we reseed, 
And all those things are part of that honorable harvest. And I think we're missing that as a global unit, as a global system, as a part of our sustenance, as part of our uh, doing things for good. Even though we're just using social media to teach people how to harvest, we're not teaching the other piece. We're not teaching the honorable harvest. We're just teaching how to harvest. We don't say to them, okay, I'm going into the woods. I'm going to harvest some birch or I'm going to harvest, um, I'm going to harvest strawberries, wild strawberries, or you're going to harvest blueberries, or you're going to harvest whatever it is you're harvesting. They don't show the other piece. They don't show the spiritual piece. They don't show the connection. And they don't talk about not taking more than what you need. So if we're going to, if you had a force for good, absolutely it could be. Absolutely. Because then we could show that you, if you don't need it, you don't take it. Um, when I grow my gardens, and now it's called grow a row, right? So you grow, if you have anything extra, you take it to your local food banks, you give it to your community, um, you provide some kind of way of, of sharing what you have. And that's a good thing if you're, if you're growing things. If you're harvesting out in the wild, you only take what you need in your home, right? You only need what you're taking for yourself and your, and your family. You're not taking what's needed for the globe. Um, and I think that's really hard. I think that's hard for us to get around when we have a lot. Okay. Um, yeah, I just, I, I think that's what, where I'm, I'm kind of sitting in, um, when we look at. I think those are really, um, great points. I would, um, I would love, you know, Tony, your, your input on it. I don't believe we can ask a colonial system to fix a colonial problem. There's a huge difference between knowledge and wisdom. And I personally don't believe the colonial system is built on wisdom in any way, shape or form. I believe that disconnect is of course at the root of everything. And as both uh, Danka and Candace have alluded to, food is the easiest way to see that. Food is absolutely one of the biggest areas we can see disconnection and it keeps us in this state of trusting that these colonial systems will keep producing food for us when indigenous people know that's not the case and more and more people are starting to become aware of that so how do we shift it well we need to all Stop using Indigenous people as tokens of conversation to say that we've done a good deed. Don't invite them to a panel and consider that your work being done. Bring them to a panel and learn how you can take responsibility yourself, not put it back on them to fix it. And that doesn't just come to a political level for me. For me, it goes far beyond the political arena. I mean, yes, it would be beautiful to see politicians and those actually advocating take responsibility themselves, but where I feel great change comes from is at the community level. And so if anybody who listens to this podcast alone took responsibility for their own wisdom, their own reconnection to their land, their own reconnection to the elders in their neighborhood, the old timers, the old ways, those who know the ways of reading weather, the ways of, of seeing signs of nature and change, in their regular everyday environment and took some responsibility for growing their own food 
so that they could walk away from the colonial systems responsible for all the damage, that would get the politicians' opinions, politicians' uh, attention, and begin this gigantic momentum of change that is needed. We can't all stay stuck in the broken systems, relying on them, using them, and just sit around complaining about them. If we want them to change, we have to take action by stepping away from them. And to me, that comes from a reconnection to the land and learning, as Candace said, the entire holistic approach. Not just about what to grow, start there. Absolutely start there. But learn how to do it with reverence, walk away from the colonial mindset of rape and pillage and move into reciprocity. Not just what can you take from the land, but how can you regenerate her in the process? Because I promise you, if you lean into regenerating the earth, you're regenerating yourself too. And you, you're fit. Your entire family, um, I get emotional about this, sorry. You'll all heal. And if you heal by eating healthier foods, by being connected to your space, whether it's your balcony, your bedroom window that faces south, or acres and acres of land, whatever you can reconnect to, you heal yourself by healing the earth. And that's healing our ancestors and the next seven generations to come. And I believe it's the only way. And I would absolutely echo everything that you've all just said. Like it's the responsibility of people like myself. You know, I am a product of a very, very privileged system, a very, very privileged background. Um, and my recent research on climate anxiety from a structural point of view, you know, trying to trying to put it in as a, a school safeguarding issue, you know, mental health issues for our young children going through the system. But it all comes back to, as you said, this disconnect from the land. And it is and I think I I think I mentioned this with both my discussions with both of yourself, Tawny, and in Candice, didn't I, with regards to the disconnect is really causing this this um mental health crisis you know and so everybody listen to what tawny in particular just said there it's all well and good you listening to candice to Dan to danka and to tawny you know but what are you going to do about listening to this how are you going to change the structure where you are how are you going to use the lesson materials that we hopefully do a good enough job you know through decolonizing geography and through project change uea what are you going to do with them are you going to embed them? Are you going to actually use them to get your students to reconnect with their local environment? And that's the starting process. Danka? Thank you. So one of the things I wanted to add, and I think that uh, you and Tawny and Candice have uh, done a really good synopsis of everything, is that um, much alongside what Tawny was saying, when you... Like when I harvest and I do a traditional harvest, so we do our ceremony first, we lay our tobacco, we state our intentions, that puts us on the same frequency or the harmonic range as what we're going out to harvest. And so the more that you do things and connect with the land and your community, your neighbors, the people around you, whether they're indigenous or not, you change the vibration that you're or vibration frequency that you're working at and the frequency around um, the plants and the animals that are in your direct area. The more in touch and the more you get in sync with what's going on around you, the more you're going to be lifted up. I call it an enlightening or an awakening 
you become more aware of what's going on around you, what resources are available, what resources are, are getting depleted. Very much um, when in our community, when I talk to our students at school, I always talk about rights and responsibilities, okay? As an Indigenous person, I have the right to go and harvest flora and fauna from Mother Earth to meet my needs. But I also have the responsibility that if I'm not harvesting that for a food, I am responsible to help that, whatever it is, while I'm not in the harvesting mode. So if we, if our deer have a hard winter, it's my responsibility to cut down some of the, the boughs so that the animals can have access to food or to make a feeding yard to put straw bales out or salt blocks out, whatever the animals need. If I'm fishing and harvesting pickerel and that at spawning beds, and I know that through row construction or um, road rehabilitation, the damage has been done with um, to the spawning beds because of silt or whatever, I am responsible once I have that knowledge to go back and repair those as much as possible. So not only are we responsible, we have the rights to harvest, but we're also responsible to make sure the items that we want to harvest are looked after so that they're there for the next year. Um, much of this it has a direct impact on things, just the same as um, our consumption of fossil fuels, the, the same as our consumption of electricity, the same as... Um, our air pollutants from driving back and forth to work or what we're burning in our backyard. All of those have a direct impact on our immediate ecological system and our geographical area. And we need to make sure that when we're doing this, just like I talked with those about those kids in that grade seven, eight class that I was working with about the water system, the, the having water pollution, that's a global issue. And a lot of people go, oh my God, it's so big. I can't do anything about it. But if you focus on the water in your backyard, you are affecting change globally. Even if you don't realize it, you're affecting change globally. Right? I'm going to stop now because I know somebody else has something to say. And you, yeah, you've got to start from your own backyard and then uh i see candace something to say oh no that's yeah i was just gonna um kind of add in there uh and look at uh, you know the use of our land the thought of how we use our land and and how to work with our youth because i'm just finishing up a water bundle teaching uh with queen university and we were actually talking about that like the the commulation project was to talk about grassy uh, narrows, which is uh, one of the largest pollutants uh, in Ontario for mercury, major, major mercury poisoning. It's been 50 years in the making. It's, it's been there for 50 years. It's, it's poisoned the water, it's poisoned the land, it's poisoned the people. And I, I, they're like, I said, well, we all know this. We all know that something's poisoned. Like we, we know this. To, to have the students reinforce that knowledge that we know it's poisoned, we know that it's broken, that structure's broken. What we need to do instead is empower. And we need to teach our youth how to be empowered, to use their voice, to create and develop and 
think outside the box. Like, hey, let's uh, do a science experiment. Uh, how would you make a scrubber? What kind of scrubber would you need to to filter out the poison in this water? Uh, what would you do if you couldn't use this kind of machine to gain uh, something you needed? How else would you do it? Uh, how would you fix? Go grand, big, big. Don't don't worry about whether or not you're right or you're wrong. Don't limit them to, oh, this will never work. Tell them why. Hey, I, okay, so you've drummed up this big, huge idea. You think that this might work. Um, you come up with this idea of creating a dialysis unit for this lake. Water coming in one side is going to go through this major dialysis unit. It's going to come around. It's going to come back into the lake uh, clean from one, the other side. Okay. That would be a massive project, but you know what? Okay. But the reason is it's giving them hope for a new system. And the idea too is that it will make them think of things for the future. It will make them think, oh, well, you know, it, it, it may be impractical right now, but it also encourages them to look at what's already there for technology. What is already out there? We have oxygen scrubbers that are not being utilized. We have things that are being not utilized for cleaning, cleaning water. Why aren't they being utilized? Because someone can't make money off of them. Um, it's good to empower our youth to investigate those things. Investigate them. Investigate that new technology. Is that something we can do? Create new technology that will help them build uh, a better for tomorrow. They don't have to be scientists. They don't have to be environmentalists. They can be just thinkers and tinkers. They can be some, just someone that just, you know, I want to do something. I have an idea. Write it down. We were and, saying that just before we came on, weren't we, Candice, about yeah. having that lovely chat about how imagination and art and creativity is, is drives STEM yeah, forward. Yeah, it's very important for children to have the understanding that their voice, we have youth right now. We have two, I would have to say. We have Autumn and we have is that Greta? Yes. Okay. Two, two, two very different young ladies, uh, young people, two very different um, ways of approaching. One's definitely an environmental, um, definitely on uh, climate change. And the other is our water carrier and chief for water. And yet there are two. And why is there only two? And why shouldn't there be a thousand? one from or two or three from every country why don't we have our youth stepping up and saying i don't like what you're doing to our planet i think it's time we have a voice in the say of what you're doing to our planet do we need that fossil fuel is there another way to do it is there a reason why we can't do this why can't i change it to do that rather than give fossil fuel to a third world country why can't we build something for them that will be a green build Put the money in there rather than give them money to hope that they'll build something. Do it for them. Get in there and help them in a way that builds that community, right? A community engagement, a global community engagement. Our youth are amazing. They are yeah. innovative. They're adaptive, right? They can overcome things that otherwise we wouldn't think they could. And that is the hallmark of our youth. We should be utilizing that to the absolute max. We should be telling them, no, not you can't. Yes, you can. We shouldn't be saying, oh, that's going to be too costly or that doesn't work or, um, you know, lower your voice. You're going to upset somebody. No, raise your voice. Absolutely. I just Support want to give that. a plug 
for um, there's a fantastic book out right now um, written by Maya Rose Craig and people in the UK would know her as Bird Girl, um, um, an ornithologist, uh, person of color, but young person. And she's collated a book called We Have a Dream, Meet 30 Young Indigenous People and People of Color Protecting the Planet. And it's illustrated beautifully by Sabrina um, Khadija. And it's just everybody look it up. And they, that's a pure example of what you're talking about, yeah. Candice, is these people need amplifying. They need a platform. They need the support. And we, they need, we need to help these uh, to galvanize even more voices out there because they mm-hmm. are amazing. You're right. Yeah. I agree. Uh, and if our future is our youth and our knowledge holders are the bridge and wisdom for that, then that's our job. Our job as elders and knowledge keepers are to teach the youth and encourage them and build them and give them the wisdom that they need. And because on the four directions, it is elder to, to youth and it's from adult to child. So as the adult who coaches and encourages our children and raises them up to make sure that they're ready to be a youth. And then it's the elder that kicks into the youth to lift them up and push them forward to say, give them the courage that when they become an adult, they can still utilize that voice. They can still uh, bring that knowledge forward. And it's a balance of that temperament that they need at that time, that it's okay to be upset about the things that you're hearing. It's okay to feel, but don't use that. Don't get overwhelmed by it. Don't let it dog you down. Don't let it um, depress you. Use it to fuel you. Use it in a positive way to make the changes you want to see in there. Um, I think it's kind of neat. My dad spends, he's a senator for the Métis Nation of Ontario for years. He's retired. Um, and at one of the conferences he attended to the, as a youth for the March break camp, he said that he was talking to a group of youth, young people who were complaining that they didn't have anything to look forward to. There was no future for things. And he just said, we are only limited for, to the vision of our future when we limit the imagination of what our future can be. Yeah. And the more we limit our imagination for what the things we can do, we will see less of what our future should be. And that's the truth. Um, and I use that. I, 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 I hold that close to me every day. I go into a classroom to inspire my youth to move far towards better things. So I'll leave it. I'm going to shut up now. That's really inspiring. I must say it's, you know, what i'd like to add there is that when candace was talking um she said about providing things for people um not giving them money hoping that they're going to buy it but to help provide it for them when we do that we need to make sure that um oh for a bad example let's say um, we have a couple, well, there's a lot of reserves in Canada that ha, that the youth in those reserves don't know about being able to turn a tap on and get a drink because they have contaminated drinking water. They're on a boil water advisory or do not consume, right? So the one place in particular, they built a water purification plant there. They had it running and then all of the people moved back home from where they were before and nobody on that reserve was taught how to run or repair that water water purification plant. So now it sits there. 
They still are under uh, do not consume water advisory to boil water. And when they complained to the government, they said, well, we gave you a water purification plant. You're just not using it. Well, they can't use it if they don't know how. They can't, they can't run it if they don't get the training for it. So if we're looking at starting something and trying to do global impacting, if we're going to gift something, we need to make sure that with that gift, we pass on the knowledge to maintain that gift so that people are there or will be there that can run it, that can do repairs, that can train the up-and-comers to be able to look after it. Um, throwing something or throwing money at somebody doesn't work. Um, my husband is an avid one of like, yeah, I can go catch a fish. That'll feed you for a day. But if I take you fishing and teach you how to catch the fish, then you can feed yourself for a lifetime. Right? If I show you what bait to use to catch what fish you like, then you're always going to have a food that you like and you're not going to have to eat something that you don't know how to prepare. So it's about when we do something, we have to think about the long reaching goals. How far is that shadow going to cast from that effort? Is it only going to last for one day and then they're in the dark again? Or is that shadow going to last for years and that knowledge going to get passed down and passed on so that this is a viable solution? It's all about economics and viability at that point. Um, when we're looking at the global issue and our youth, like what Candace said, and I'm sure Tawny will agree with this, is that um, our investment in our youth is paramount for the survival, not only for the survival of our planet, but for, excuse me, for the survival of our culture and our traditions and our knowledge. And we have to nurture, protect, and foster that growth. And we need to make sure that we're investing in them because we didn't get where we are today in the position that we are or the roles that we're filling because somebody just said, here, do this. We had to develop and nurture ourselves and grow into the people that we wanted to become in order to all be here on this panel today. And we need to give that same grounding, that same nurturing, that same safe environment for our youth to follow for them to fulfill and live up to their potentials if you're told you're a failure long enough you become a failure if you are told that you're a xeno princess warrior or a nova warrior princess then that's who you're going to become right it's our messaging so we need to watch what we're messaging because we're not only messaging with our word, we're messaging with our attitude, with our appearance, with our actions. And we're definitely messaging when we think that nobody is watching us. A lot of people think, okay, I'll put this shirt on. I'll look pretty on the TV screen. I'll say this and I'll say that. And then if I leave and I change my shirt and I go do something dishonorable and disrespectful, they're not going to worry about whether I look nice on the television. They're going to worry about my actions. And if I'm saying one thing and doing something totally different, then my integrity becomes questioned. 
So we need to make sure that we're doing the right thing for the right reason, even if it's at an inconvenient time. We need to stick to our integrity. We need to follow through. If we're going to say it, we need to do it. So one of the things that uh, I've taught my children is that you have to be careful of what you think because your thoughts become your words. You have to be careful of what you say because your words become your actions. And you have to be careful of your actions because your actions tell about who you are and whether you have integrity or not. So it's about always doing the right thing even when you think nobody else is looking. I think Tony, that... you want to come in on that one? Sorry. Well, I was going to say is I think that uh, if we all invest in our youth and we all support our youth, that we can see amazing things happen. But we need to step up and start investing before we know what they're going to do because we don't know who the next president's going to be or who the next chief is going to be. But we can make sure that they're good people so that they can do what they need to do. So, yes, you were asking Tony something. Tony. <laughs> um, when it comes to children, you know, I'm still in the early ages of, of raising young children, and I'm surrounded mostly by um, other families with, with children 10 and under. And what I experience, my, my only offering to the way we encourage children comes through that lens and for me the best thing we can do for our children is to model hard work is to model taking responsibility that's how we impart wisdom not knowledge I truly believe our children are more than capable of gaining knowledge. We live in an information age. Knowledge is everywhere. What they need, in my opinion, is to recognize that as human beings, we're meant to feel across a broad spectrum of feelings. And that things are difficult, hard, uncomfortable, but that doesn't make them wrong or bad. It simply is. And if we hold space for them to be in each of those feelings by modeling that we ourselves can explore those feelings and stop making false promises, everything is gonna be all right. It's a great Bob Marley song. It's not necessarily the way of the world, but what we can do is hard things and we can do them all together. I feel like, Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, is a great, um, a great reminder of, of the, the programming we can give our kids and how it can affect them in, in the terms of what we say to them. And, you know, to Danka's point, it's absolutely be careful of your thoughts and your words and your actions, but also as parents. Let's not just put the responsibility on our kids to fix the world. Let's stand up and do the work with them now. And hold space for them to be better than us because we showed them that hard work can be done and that the power is always with us if we stay in an empowered state 
by taking responsibility for what we can do in each and every moment. This is all very um, inspiring and, you know, especially what Tony has just said about even parents, you know, taking that responsibility. I think coming from a brown background um, of coming from Pakistan, that's, you know, that's where it kind of lacks parents taking the responsibility as well. So this is all such great and inspiring advice and such a great conversation. Um, I think for the end, I would like to ask all of you for your final thoughts for a minute each. That would be great. Everyone mind if I if I go first because I'd like for yeah. I'd like to end on our on our guests because it's their platform. But I just want to say to all the three of you, thank you so much for giving up your time um, for you know with us and and we we promise Manor and I and I'm I'm going to make the promise on behalf of everybody listening. Right, I'm putting you on the spot that we're going to do more than just simply chat to you for the yeah. last hour and then how many times we've done that. And I know that we've been engaging in the conversation const- constantly throughout the, you know, through emails and whatnot, but um, it, it, this is, this process has given me food for thought. Um, I, I can, I consider myself an ally, but that's not a label anyone can give themselves. And that's something I've, I've, I've learned, you know, very, very recently. So, so um, thank you so much, uh, uh Mikwech for to you. I, I'm I'm still learning, <laughs> um, and and uh, yes, and this is this is something I'm deeply deeply passionate about, and um, I'm sure the folks at uh, Decolonize and Geography and Project Change are going to do our best to take this forward and um, uh, through your inspiration. So yeah, I'd love to hear your final yeah. thoughts for a minute each, and if you'd like I, to bat off each other, I would also Mahal, like. Do you want to? Yeah, do you want to? I would also like to say Chi Mikwech to everyone it was such an honor literally to speak to all of you and gain a deeper insight on the subject because um it's like you know i'm sitting at home and it's such a you know it's a privilege actually you know and uh, to talk to you and all of and get all of your knowledge and i as a what kit said i promise that all of the advice i will act upon it and um, use your wisdom to take action Over to you. <laughs> okay, um, we'll go in the. I just go to start um, as I introduced first August. Um, in a minute, some sum up something. I'm going to sum something up. I think what we need to look at is that we can do locally what needs to be done globally. We have a voice. We have action. We have media, we have means. We definitely need to be better role models, inspiration for our youth. I guess my challenge for going onward for anyone who's listening to here today is step outside your comfort zone, get to know your land that you're on, get to know what can be done in your area to help with climate change, to help with uh, things that um, make an impact. You might think I'm only one, but if everyone's one joins together, we become many. Find a way to teach someone. If you know something, teach it. If you know um, something about the land, offer time out to people to walk on the land with you. 
If you're learning about the land, start small. Your backyard works, identify a tree. Does it belong there? Is it an invasive species? Learn about a plant. Is it medicine? Is it food? Does it belong there? Those are important things. And then share that knowledge. You've learned it yourself, share it. Then take the next step out, go outside your backyard, go to a local park, go to a conservation area, move up from there, go to another park, look at your province or your capital or your state, um, and go from there. And don't end until you think you've heard everything or found everything. Um, and encourage others, encourage others, encourage others, encourage others. Lift each other up for what we're doing and not for what we're not doing. Everything's a good thing. Uh, thank you both for having me on here today. It's always uh, a good thing to share about our experiences and provide opportunities to share knowledge. It's, it's always a pleasure. Kachima Kwich to both of you. Your language is awesome. We are proud to hear your voice. I would like to ask for Tony to go first because I'd like to close with a prayer if that is okay with everybody. Absolutely. I believe that hope is only missing if we let it be. And that, of course, comes back to that whole concept of responsibility. And I know how hard connecting is in the age of disconnection. But it starts with a choice. And it starts with a step. And with each step, we can move forward. There's a big narrative, a big story about all of life, about the journey, about the destination, about how it's supposed to be about who you're supposed to be or who you're supposed to become. And the reality of it is, is you've already become. You are who you are and you're here now. And the destination is the end of being here on earth. So live it while you're here. And perhaps consider while you're living here, ensuring that those you care about, those you believe in, whether that's a plant, a tree, an animal species, a child, a relative, Consider that your actions make a difference to their existence now and seven generations later. And it's a choose your own adventure. You get to choose which way you walk on this planet. You get to choose which narratives you believe. You get to choose which stories become part of your story. I hope everybody who listened today chooses to hear our stories, our voices, not to be a token of, I did something good, but a reminder that you are already good and can do better. And I believe in each and every one of you. It doesn't matter how you got here today, you got here. And that's enough. You are enough and the world needs you. So please keep rising. And thank you for caring enough to try. And to my elders who joined me on this call, what an honor to sit with such wisdom. And Kitten Manhor, how you found me is always a mystery, but the world works in mysterious ways. I'm deeply honored. Thank you for hearing my voice. Chi miigwech, miigwech bizindawye. Chi miigwech. 
um, Kit Mahar, Migritch, for inviting us to speak on this panel today. Um, you, you're doing amazing work, and uh, don't forget your rock stars. So I'd like to close with a prayer. I'm going to say it in the language, and I'll translate it for you. Um, so the language I speak is Algonquin. Bojo makwai wapshikwe indijnikaz. Makwa dodam mi omayan. Miigwech mishomis. Gibiwaka sodan damawayan nangom. Miigwech dikad nangom gizagak wawani. Jimenonga na wabag namaji nibaja madazuin. Minawa wawani jigaga mo agawa. Miigwech ge gokabonis inan gindan ade anang. Miigwech mizian mino bamadazuin. Miigwech ge mijim oya ge nibe. Asema Nibigadadan Endasun Ondayakamak Ewedi Widaw Nang Ja Wananan Nigabiyan Nang Miguechwea Giwanandang Windoka Shewin Jimishwead Buwayan Ni Na Jizun Gidea Miigwech, Mishomas, Miigwech, Nikolkomas. I said, hello. My name is White Bear Woman. My totem is the bear. I am here. And this is us. Thank you, Grandfather, for shining on us today. I say thank you for this day and that I would look on my fellow human beings and I will talk to people in a good way. Thank you to our grandmother, the keeper of the earth, for giving us the good life. Thank you for the food and the water. Thank you for the animals and for the air that we breathe. I offer my tobacco to the four directions. There to the east, the south, the west, and the north. Help me to be able to stand strong and to have a strong heart. Thank you, grandfather. Thank you, grandmother. Thank you for everybody that was able to participate or listen to this podcast. The words I would like to leave you with is you matter. You inspire. You are worthy. You are leaders. A good leader is a good follower. Your ancestors are the ones that passed on before you, left good teachings in their moccasin tracks that you now follow. Be sure to pick those bundles up and carry them close to your heart, and they will keep you in a good way as you journey your earthly walk before you become an, ans become an ancestor yourself. Chimigwich for your time. Miigwech, miigwech, miigwech. Miigwech, miigwech. Miigwech. I'd just like to end by saying, Bapami. Bapami. Yeah. Bamapi. Thank you, everyone. Bamapi. Bamapi. Until again, Bamapi. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the panel discussion today. I hope you all enjoyed it. This panel discussion was in collaboration with Decolonizing Geography, Coffee and Geography podcast, and 
uh, project change uh, by University of East Anglia. For more information on these projects and Coffee and Geography podcasts, check out the links in the description. The discussion is also being used by Decolonizing Geography to make learning resources to decolonize the geography syllabus in the UK. For more information, email me on enfcast at gmail.com and follow me on Instagram at mahnoorenf. Talk to you all.